Mark, many of you know, is the shortest of the uh, Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, Mark is, I like him, not only because, you know, he's my namesake, but, but he also um, is brief to the point, gets right to, to saying what he wants to say. And so he gives a really uh, concise account of the beginning of Christ's ministry. And so we're going to read that together um, to get started today. And um, so if you would, uh, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 9 this morning. And this is what we read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. And we're on uh, page 488. So should have mentioned that. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, Okay, resuming the scripture. Um, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Let me pause right there. Have you ever wondered what that must have looked like to see the heavens torn open? Everyone understands a dove descending, but the heavens torn open. I don't have anything to add to that. Just think about it for a little while. It's pretty cool. Um, and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Just a quick note there. If you find yourself in a desert dry place and you're with wild animals, either literally or figuratively, just know that God's going to send ministering angels to help you there. So chew on that for a little while. Verse 14. Now, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. This is what I want you to get. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Now, if you understood those words, the time is fulfilled, this place would have erupted in praise. He's saying, the waiting is over. The, the, the timer went ding. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean, Jesus? What are we supposed to do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we don't have words to fully express how grateful we are that the time is fulfilled, Lord God, and that you're here and that you've given us the good news of God, the gospel of God, and that you have invited us into that through repentance, Lord God. And so, Father, I pray that you would take this this most significant truth, this most relevant truth in all of our life and make it real to us today, Lord God. And God, as we ponder together what the gospel is and how we can identify what the gospel is, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, open our spirits, open our souls to fully understand the magnitude of the ground upon which we are treading today. Lord, we thank you. You are good. You are amazing. You are worthy of all praise, of all sacrifice. And we just thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Help me now as I bring this word. Amen. So the gospel. 
The gospel is a word that in our culture, even though we live in a largely secular culture, the, the word gospel is used a lot. Many of you would know that the, the, it roughly translates, it roughly means good news. But it's so much more than that. And, and what we want to do today, I want to do two things. I, I was telling the people that gather with me for prayer on Sunday mornings um, that I'm going to preach two sermons today, so I hope you brought a snack. So, no, I'm just kidding. Well, I'll do it in the time it takes to do one. But, but I want to preach two different sermons. The first half of my sermon, I want to discuss with you what is the gospel? When, when we talk about the gospel, we do it a lot around here, and we don't, we're not ashamed of that. But when we talk about the gospel, what exactly are we talking about? What is the gospel? So that's part one. Part two is this. When we hear somebody talking in Christian or churchy or religious or biblical terminology, how do we identify the, the difference between the gospel... As, as it's presented in scripture and, you know, just Christianese, Christian talk. Everybody know that there's a difference there? Everybody understand that? Most of you understand that? So last week what we did is we, to kind of set this up, we began to discover together the answer to this question. What is the mission of the church? And, and we're going to continue on that course this week. We talked about how the basis of our mission, the reason we have a mission, is because of Christ's declaration of his universal, all-encompassing authority. Because he's been given authority, all authority, in both heaven and earth, we have a guarantee. How many of you like guarantees? How many of you like guarantees when they come from someone as truthful as Jesus? We have a guarantee of support and ultimately success in the proclamation of his story. The, what we're going to be calling the gospel. And this isn't to suggest, when I say we have a guarantee of success, I'm not suggesting that every person on planet earth will be saved, will be born again. And we're not suggesting that every person that we share the gospel with will eventually suggest it. What I'm suggesting and what I mean when I say we have a guarantee of success is that you and I are not timidly hoping that we can walk out of our door Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc. And, and fulfill God's mission for us. We have been given a commission and we have all of God's authority. The one that we sang around who, who, who spoke galaxies into existence. We have all of his authority backing up our commission. We have full confidence that we'll succeed because of that. It, it, it means that we have a standing commission both to go and to speak in his name because he and his authority has commanded us to do so. And we said this last week, but this authorization that we have from Christ is not subject to the government of man. It is not subject to the government of man or any other human restraint. In fact, listen to this. Never forget this. The church of God has always thrived the most when it was persecuted the most. Uh, see, when, when, when the church is tiptoeing through the tulips and skipping through the daisies, it tends to get lazy and fat. But when the heat gets turned up, we tend to go, oh, 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 we have a mission. We got to get, get about fulfilling our mission. 
Even in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John were commanded by the Jewish authorities who were in control at that time, not to preach in the name of Christ any longer, they had a simple response to that. Very respectful of those authorities, but this was their response. We have to obey God rather than men. See, for them, it was a chain of command issue. Christ's command to preach trumped any civil order they were given not to do so. They were safe and they were ultimately supported by God's power and his kingly decree as long as they obeyed. And they were convinced that even if they were beaten, even if they were killed, they rested joyfully in the promise that they were eternally secure with Jesus forevermore. They were, in fact, bulletproof. Now, we also spoke last week about the difference between leading a person to decision, i.e. to pray a prayer or join the church, and making disciples for Christ, which means to teach people about Jesus, his story, his requirements, how he's glorified, etc. We discussed how decisions are based on shifting tastes and attitudes, but discipleship requires daily surrendering more and more to Christ. And ultimately renouncing everything we have that we may just gain him. For a further explanation of this, look at Philippians chapter 3 later today. Last week, I reminded you that Jesus had said in Luke 14, 33, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you feel the weight of that when Christ says that? Listen, I'm not standing in front of you as some preacher that that has it all together, that when I leave here, I take off my robe and go to my apartment in the Vatican and just kind of sit around, you know, having people call me his holiness. I feel the weight of Christ saying anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why do I feel the weight of that? Because too often I look at my hands and they're not in this position. They're in this position. Way too often. Y'all don't mind if I confess my sins because apparently I'm the only one. But, but y'all don't mind that, do you? If I just tell you who I really am, it's not going to blow your mind. This is not to imply that, that when, when Jesus says that you have to renounce all that you have, it's not to imply that someone who responds to the gospel... Some of you are just on the verge of belief today, and I encourage you to come on over. But I'm not implying that if you respond to the gospel, you have to sell your house and your car and move to a third world country in order to be counted a true disciple. Because if that's what I was preaching, guess what? We'd all be in deep trouble. All of us. It's not what I'm preaching. It means that for the rest of our lives, listen to me carefully. If you want to know if you're truly a follower of Christ, it means for the rest of our lives, we have to, they have, we have to spend those days regularly dying to ourselves and coming alive to Christ's lordship and his will for our lives. Nothing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing is left off the table. He can give and he can take as he sees fit for our good. He can do so with our health, our wealth, our careers, our dreams, our ambitions, all of it. Therefore, in order to be a disciple maker, we we must constantly be teaching, encouraging each other, and be willing to be taught and encouraged by each other. Listen, it's always a two-way street. No one gets to be the high, exalted grand poobah who gets to tell everybody else what to do, except for Jesus. We have to be willing to give and to receive. And and what we're teaching people to do and encouraging people to do is to observe or obey 
all that Jesus commanded. Uh, we also talked last week about how our decision, uh, you know, when we make decisions for Jesus, which is primarily something I do, that that's inferior to conversion, which is something the Holy Spirit accomplishes in me. And, and often he accomplishes it in spite of me. As I said last week, I'd like for us to begin to use and to ponder this language of conversion versus decision more and more at Northridge Life. Lastly, we talked uh, last week about how we not only have the covering of Christ's authority to accomplish his mission, uh, but we also have the assurance of his presence. Aren't you glad? He did not send you on your mission by yourself. He didn't just boot you out the door and hope you, you can make it. He said these words, he said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. To put it in Texan parlance, he said, I ain't going nowhere. We have the assurance of his presence. He said that he would always be with us to the very end of the age. What age is he talking about? He's talking about the present age, the age that began his ascension and that will end when he returns as king. He's with us through that entire age. All, this is the age of our commission to make disciples of all the nations. It's in full effect. And the commission ends when the age ends and vice versa. So this week, I want to take a closer look, as I said, at this marvelous thing we call the gospel. Now, if you're around, as I said earlier, Northridge Life Church for very long, you are going to hear that word a lot. And we make no apologies for that. None whatsoever. All of our eggs are in the basket of the gospel. All of it. If you're looking for act two, I ain't got it. This is all I got. If you're looking for my other message, sorry, I haven't discovered it yet. This is all I got. Just the gospel. All our eggs are in the basket of the gospel. The whole gospel, nothing but the gospel. It shapes our doctrine. It informs our policy. It clarifies our destiny. When we find we're off track on the gospel, we hope that our commitment to the gospel reels us right back in. The gospel is essentially... So what is this gospel? Is it, is it a doctrine? Is it a policy? Is it any of those things? No, the, the, doctrine, the gospel is essentially a story. You like stories, right? I mean, you go to the movies, you watch TV, you read books. You like stories. Well, the gospel is essentially a story. It's not a fiction story. It's an absolutely true story, but essentially it's a story. And it's a story that has deep ramifications for every human being since the moment God knelt in the mud to make Adam. This is true for us. This, this story is true whether we believe it, whether we accept it. It's true for those who have heard the story and responded to it. And it's true for those who are living and have died never having heard the story. It's true. This is a story consisting of four acts like a play. And I'm going to briefly describe those four acts for you. We sang about the first act today. The first act is creation. The very first verse of the Bible. Who can say it? There you have the, the summary of the first act of, the, of the, the gospel story. The first act is creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The first verse tells us that God created everything in the beginning. When he was done with each phase of his creating, he looked at it and he didn't say, well, that could use some work. No, he said, that's good or that's very good. The crowning achievement in the work of creation was the formation of humanity represented by a man and a woman who, unlike everything else in all of the cosmos, would be unique because they alone would bear the, the unique 
image of their creator. To the man and the woman, he delegated managerial authority. He did not do that to the fish or the apes or the birds or the trees. But to the man and the woman, he delegated managerial authority. God told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And they could not have been in a better position. What a job. What a job description. Subdue subdue the whole earth. But it's in the second act of this play that this drama reveals itself to be a tragedy. We call this act the fall. The man and the woman living in paradise are beguiled by an enemy who convinces them to reject their maker's authority. And to not only just reject his authority, but to literally grasp for his crown. But in seeking his throne, in seeking his throne, they abdicate their own. They lose their throne because they want his. The couple's evicted from their home in paradise on earth. And they, along with all of their descendants, that's you and I, as well as the entire creation, is placed under a curse, hard work, pain, conflict, disease, loss, and finally death. Not to mention the ultimate consequence, eternal separation from God himself. The one that they used to walk in fellowship with day and day, day in and day out. Now there's eternal separation. This is the only heritage of the once flawless creation. But before you get real depressed, it's at this point in the story that something absolutely stunning happens. Something amazing. See, as God, the judge, is doling out righteous punishments to all the players in this attempted coup, the serpent, the woman, the man, he makes a promise. Right there in the middle of the judgment, he makes a promise. He says to the serpent, the one who orchestrated their fall, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise or crush your head and you will bruise his heel. He's saying that a day is coming when one of the woman's descendants will deal a fatal blow to the tempter. Even though the the tempter will cause him temporary injury and pain, he's saying that those things, all this mess is going to be made right again. Now, act two is the longest act of this play, this act of the fall. It's it's, it's, it's here where we see the dev- devastation that this unleashed power of sin works in nations and families and individuals all the way from Genesis to Malachi. But, but all through this story, prophets, priests, and kings, and through their ministries, God continues to assure his creation that a day is coming. A day when all of this is going to be set right. So finally, after centuries of sin wreaking havoc across the span of the globe, we come to the third act of the play. And we call this act redemption. The long-awaited deliverer finally shows up. Now, you would have had been looking close to see him because he, he... He did so quietly and discreetly. He was born to peasant laborers who were away from home in a stranger's barn one night. 
The amazing thing about this deliverer is that he was a man descended from the blood of David, Israel's greatest king. But what only a handful of people knew, what they only a handful understood, was that, and this had to be revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, was that he wasn't just the son of David, he was in fact the son of God. And he was equal to God himself. But though we have, but rather though his humanity was royal and spiritually divine, listen to this, the redemption of the race wouldn't be accomplished by him leading military forces or taking his rightful place on an earthly throne. On the contrary, this king would, would free his people, would free you, would free myself, by willingly paying the full penalty of humanity's collective guilt. From Adam and Eve to you and I, and extending to all of our descendants in the future, this penalty demanded that the king, the one who was worthy to sit enthroned over this earth, that the king be brutally tortured, that he be publicly mocked, and finally impaled with spikes through his hands and and through his feet, until at last he breathed his final breath, crying out, It is finished. See, what he said when he said it's finished, he wasn't saying I'm dying. He was saying, he was indicating that mankind's massive sin debt that had so long separated them and alienated them from God had finally been paid perfectly and in full. Anybody ready for some good news? Three days after his awful crucifixion, the Holy Spirit walked right into the tomb that man had sealed. Walked right in there like he owned the place. Oh, he did own the place. And he raised this deliverer back to life and to a brand new kind of life. So Jesus didn't just forgive us through his death, but he demonstrated his power by defeating our final most brutal, most unforgiving, most unrelenting universal enemy, death itself. He said, no more. No more. See, Paul says that his resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says the promissory note guaranteeing our own resurrection from the dead as well. And at last we come to the final act in this long drama. See, with Jesus' death and resurrection, he inaugurated a kingdom. But if you look around and you see terrorism and school shootings and political corruption and, and the sin you deal with in your own life, you go, a ah, new kingdom. This doesn't look like a new kingdom. It looks like the same old sin to me. Well, see, I'll go into this later at some other point, but, but we live in this place that theologians have called the now and the not yet. Now, how many of you know Christ is reigning now? But that he is progressively reigning. And the day is coming when he will literally, physically, visibly be seated on a throne, reigning over all of earth and putting an end to sin, to death, to, to, to conflict, to, to terrorism, to school shootings. It's all going to be over because he's coming to reign. 
And, and that's the final act in this long drama. It's the best one. We call it new creation. It's revealed that as a part of our Redeemer's triumph, He's come not only to make us new as individuals, but to also remake the entire creation. That as He has redeemed, so will He also restore. Restore the perfect nature of the new creation so it'll be like the first one. This means new bodies, new desires, a new kind of government based perfectly on on His justice and righteousness. Though this will not be fully realized until Christ comes again to reign as visible King on planet Earth, we right now get the benefit of the inauguration of that kingdom. We are the faithful representatives of our King, empowered, the Bible says, by the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead. Even now and today, we are Christ's ambassadors of this new kingdom. So what will this new creation be like? Open your Bibles again. Turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and find chapter 21. For those of you using one of the Bibles on the seats, it's page 603. And this is good stuff here you're about to read. If you wonder, what, what, what's this world coming to? I'm about to tell you. This is what this world is coming to. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the, and the first earth had passed away, and then the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Get this, brace yourself, brace yourself. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Mm. See, right now, you know as good as I do, the dwelling place of God. We know He's in us. We know the Holy Spirit is here. But when we think of of God, we think of God up there. Not anymore. We're going to see Him. We're going to walk with Him. The Bible says we'll behold His face. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, that's an important distinction because in the Old Testament, over and over, it says, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you'll be my God. But right here in Revelation, at the end of time, he says, I'll be your God, but I'll be with you as your God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Anybody cried this week, this month, this year? had pain that was indescribable. Well, guess what? The promise of the new heavens and the new earth is going to wipe every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Anybody lost anybody in the last couple years, lifetime, that you miss and your heart is aching? That's all over in the new Jerusalem. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things, listen, the former things, if I may be so bold, the crap we deal with now, the former things are passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, did you notice that? You notice where Jesus is? He's not hanging on a cross. He's not walking in sandals through Galilee somewhere. He's seated on a throne. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, listen to this. I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's saying, hey, God said it that day. You can believe it. You can believe it. 
Anybody ready for that day? So there it is in a nutshell. The gospel is story in four distinct acts. But now that we know what the gospel basically is, we need to consider whether what we're hearing is the gospel or something else. Now, I'm not talking about in the culture. I'm talking about especially in the church or on Christian radio or Christian TV or on the Internet. And this, this ability to identify what is and is not the gospel is a skill of utmost importance. Utmost importance. The Apostle Paul was deadly serious about the purity of the message and the preaching of the gospel. He told the churches in Galatia, he said, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that you originally received, let that person be accursed. You don't mess around with the gospel. Come on, y'all. You don't mess around with the gospel. Paul said that even if it's an angel doing the preaching, let him be accursed if they're not preaching what was handed down. So I'd like to give you six quick ways, and we'll go fast, to judge whether what you're being fed is or is not the gospel. And I hope you find this list as helpful as I have. First, it's only the gospel if it's laser-focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Only. I do not care how many scriptures are quoted in a given message. I don't. Don't care. That does not make it biblical. doesn't make it the gospel. I don't care how many Holy Ghost heebie-jeebies you claim the message gives you. Couldn't care less about that. If the message is not centered on and anchored in the redeeming death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ, what you are hearing is absolutely not the gospel of God. It is not the gospel if it is not centered around Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a type of music. It's not a mere attestation of the truthfulness of something. It's not a type of church or denomination. It is the testimony of all that God the Father has accomplished because of the obedience of His only begotten Son. Paul the greatest theologian that ever lived told the Corinthians that he would gladly jettison all the wisdom of this world, and he had a lot of it, because he had determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Second, it's only the gospel if it's biblical. Now, I know this makes you want to go, well, duh, Captain Obvious. But not so fast, not so fast. Don't start throwing your rocks at me yet. Take a look around you. Just take a look around and, and see what people freely attach Jesus' name to. Things that have no connection whatsoever with the written word of God. Nothing whatsoever. How many Facebook memes have commandeered the name and the glory of Jesus Christ in order to guilt you into liking and sharing. Or, or to feel like you'd be blessed if you did. Want to have a great day at work, like and share. Or, or to keep Jesus from weeping. All oh, that's baloney. It's not the gospel. One of the, one of the biggest bestsellers of the last few years is based on one woman's claims to have received 365 directly received revelations from Jesus so that you'll know what he wants you to know. Is that a problem? But guess what? I got good news for you before you rush out and buy the book. Guess what? 
Jesus himself has already given you 66 books so that you'll know what he wants and what he thinks. And I think, call me a fanatical fundamentalist, I think we should start with this book and not that one. When Christ wanted to confirm his identity to two of his followers uh, on the road to Emmaus, the day he was resurrected, he didn't parade his miracles. He didn't uh, you know, talk about some new teaching. He proved his div- divinity. Listen to this. He proved his divinity by appealing to the Old Testament. Uh, seriously, that's how he did. He didn't say, well, guys, I, you know, I know you're confused. You think Jesus is dead, but you know, I can heal your eyes. You know? I can, I can make lame people walk. He didn't do any of that. He said, this is what the Bible says. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, listen to this passage, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He pointed to scripture and he said, guys, this is where you find out that I am who I say I am. If it's not biblical, it's not the gospel. Third, it's only the gospel if it's historical. I did not roll out of bed this morning to lull you to sleep with philosophical ramblings about the value of Jesus's moral example. I've come here to declare that the immaterial God has invaded the real world of time and space and took on human flesh. And he did so in actual human history. Somewhere around 33 AD, in actual human history, he was betrayed, he was killed, and buried for the sins of the world. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he was raised from the dead three days later by the power of God. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in power and glory. And many eyewitnesses saw this happen. Those eyewitnesses were so convinced of what they had seen in actual human history that they spent the remainder of their lives proclaiming it as actual historical fact. In fact, most of them were brutally killed because of their refusal to recant the testimony of what they so thoroughly and completely believed. These events are not fantasy, they're not myth, they're not legend, they're not fiction, they're not philosophy. These events, these are events that really occurred. And the dung pile of history is littered with untold thousands of attempts to disprove or discredit these events. Fourth, it's only the gospel if it's personal. Now, I don't mean to suggest that you can have your own private little thing with Jesus. I don't need you, I don't need the church, it's just me and Jesus. You know, you hear that garbage all the time. When I say it's personal, I'm saying that if you're hearing the gospel, it will have a dramatic effect on you personally. It matters little what someone else, your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your preacher, it matters little what someone else says or believes. What matters is the answer to the question that Jesus posed to his disciples in Matthew 16 that he poses every day to you and to me. Who do you say that I am? You. Who do you say that I am? I don't care what the culture says about Jesus. I don't care what some preacher says about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't either. Jesus wants to know what I think about him. What do I say about the truth he presented? 
So you have to, have to ask yourself if that's true. What the, the following questions. Is my belief in Christ social? Do I believe because my friends or my family believe? You have to ask your, your, yourself, is my belief cultural or societal? Do I believe because it's the right thing to do? Is my belief opportunistic? Do I believe that that there's that believing is the path to some temporal blessings or just a quick ticket out of hell? Or do you believe, like Peter did, that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life and that recognizing that there's nowhere else for you to turn? The gospel is personal. Fifth, it's only the, doc, the, the gospel if it's doctrinal. Everyone went, ugh. I don't want doctrine, just give me Jesus. And guess what? They are intertwined. You cannot have one without the other. The Bible is not some book of pithy sayings collected so that preachers like me will have some motivational ammunition for you on Sunday morning. It's given. The Bible says that the gospel is given, uh, that scripture is given in Second Timothy it, to be profitable to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that we may become complete and equipped for every good work. And in order for that, all that to be accomplished, we need a list of things that we are supposed to believe. The old church confessions, like we read last week with Pastor David, the old church confessions called the scriptures, and, and wherein the gospel is contained, the only rule for faith and life or faith and practice. And this means that the true gospel always have an ever-deepening impact on what you and I believe and what we think. If it's not having an effect on the way you think or how you believe, it ain't the gospel, A, or B, you haven't believed it. It changes us. Christ revealed in God's written word and not my feelings, not my opinions, not my hopes, not my fears, decides, this book decides whether I am a sinner or whether I am redeemed. It decides how I should treat others and what is acceptable Christian behavior. The oft-repeated refrain of our culture is, hey, can't judge me. Can't nobody judge me but God. Careful. Easy there, cowboy, because the day is coming. But someone whose life, listen to me, listen to me, someone whose life is being transformed by the message of Christ will shut up long enough and with increasing humility so that the scriptures may judge them thoroughly and consistently. Just shut up and listen to what the scriptures are saying. Sounds harsh, but guys... I got to shut up. Some of you are saying, man, it's 1130. I wish you'd shut up right now. <laughs> I have to shut up long enough to hear what the scripture is saying about my life. And my belief and my faith and what I, my values. I often hear people excuse their nasty behavior by saying, well, God knows my heart. That's true. That's true. So if you're living in rebellion to the truths of this word, that should disturb you and not comfort you. <clears throat> lastly, yeah, I said that lastly. It's not the gospel if it's not practical. 
It can't be just doctrinal. It has to be practical. That doctrine that I believe has to work itself out into my 24-7 life I live. One of my commentaries had this quote in it. It said, the gospel has to do with all of life. From our families to our finances, our schooling to our purity, our relationships in the church, our ministries of word and deed, our affections and our fears. The gospel has practical implications for all of these things. The Apostle Paul's usually structure for, usual structure for his letters usually followed this simple pattern. First half, explain the gospel. Second half, apply it. Explaining how it pertains to our day-to-day lives. That's why in books like Ephesians, he says, husbands, love your wives this way. Wives, submit to your husbands this way. Parents, raise your children this way. Children, respond to your parents in this way. Uh, Employees, treat your bosses this way. Bosses, treat your employees this way. The gospel should have very practical implications on the way we live. My prayer is that you and I will become a church that has a highly developed sense to discern what is and what is not the gospel. You may think, eh, I'll just let you do that for me, Mark. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. The gospel has to be laser-focused on Jesus. It has to be biblical. It has to be just absolutely doctrinal, practical, all of the things that we just listed. We want to be a church where our spiritual senses can discern what is and is not the gospel. I pray that we would be clear in the proclamation of it, but also in the application of it. This is not my job. Hear me clearly. It's not my job. Not Pastor David's job, it's not the elder's job alone. We must all become so clear on this important message so that we can encourage each other to believe it fully and apply it deeply. God put you in my life so that you can call me back to the gospel all the time. I am not above your speaking into my life to call me back to the gospel. But here's the thing that is so radical in our individualistic culture. You're not above me calling you back to it either. (laughs) Mac, it was nice having you here. (laughs) We need each other. I've said that now three weeks in a row to call each other back to the purity and the truth of the gospel. We need each other. I want to give you one last scripture and we're done, I promise. Page 568 in your Bibles, it's Ephesians 3, if you've got your own. And I want to read this to you. This is, this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians church. And I want you to think of it as, as our prayer for each other. And, and, but I want you to listen to the gospel implications of this prayer. Listen to what, in the light of what I just said for the last half hour or so, I want you to listen to what God is saying to us to pray for each other. Ephesians 3 verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that's the riches of the glory of the enthroned king, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen to this. 17 and 18 are so important. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Comprehend what? Listen. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. That means we do it together, guys. Strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what he's saying, guys, is that if we together are committed to this message that flows out of the riches of the glory of God, the riches of the enthroned Christ, and we do it together as a church, that we will begin to know how deep, how high, how wide the love of Christ is. That we'll know it, and, and, and that we'll know that, and that, 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 that knowledge, will have knowledge. Did you see verse 19? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You ain't going to figure this out by four years at seminary. You're going to know it by being filled with all the fullness of God, clinging to his story. You know the love of Christ that suppresses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now listen, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And the church that forsakes the gospel and is not centered on the gospel will never, ever, ever experience the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. This isn't just a prayer for power. It's a prayer to be centered in the gospel. And the church that refuses to to throw back all glory to him in the church throughout all generations will never, ever experience the life of God they so desperately long for. So I did, I, we don't have a big finish today. I just want to pray for you. How many of you uh, would say, this isn't a big confession time. I really kind of hope all of your hands go up because uh, mine's going up. I, I always joke I'll put two up and if I could get a foot up or two, I would do that as well. But how many of you say, man, I get so distracted, not by the problems of this life. We all do that, but... I get so distracted by things, religious concerns, theories, conspiracies, whatever, have nothing to do with the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And I want to be called back to the gospel. Would you just shoot your hand up real high? In fact, would you just stand up real tall? <laughs> and, and, and maybe if, and if there's, <laughs> and maybe there's some of you here that say, on the second half of this message that, that man, I want my senses. He says, says, when you're preaching that, Mark, I kind of realize that there might be some areas I've been suckered into to, to settle for religious and Christian and biblical sounding things that were not the gospel. And I would like, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that, but I would like to know and have better discernment for what is and is not the gospel. Would, would anybody receive that prayer if I prayed that over all of us? So... I'm going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. First of all, God, before we ask you for anything, we thank you for the gospel. 
We thank you that you wrote a perfect story. And I thank you that Jesus is the title page, Jesus is the plot, and Jesus is the the end of that story, God. Thank you for that story. Thank you, God, for the way it changes us and transforms us and gives us life and hope, Lord God. Thank you for the way that you've demonstrated your love and the way you called us from our wickedness to be sons and daughters of the Most High God through the gospel, through the work of Jesus. So, God, we just repent. We confess that we've been distracted by other things, by clever doctrines and and, and uh, just bizarre teachings in some cases, Lord God, that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and reigning. And so, God, will you call us back to the gospel this morning? Call us back to your story. And, God, we pray that you would um, give us discernment to know when someone's trying to sell us a bill of goods that have nothing to do with your story. Just help us to know it, God. Open our eyes. And, God, we can learn a lot about how to sniff out the gospel. But, God, what we really need is your Spirit's power to show us, Lord God, to show us, to convict us, Lord God, when we're getting distracted by things that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would be the kind of church that knows it, that responds to it, that, that, that holds each other accountable to stay on the track of the gospel. And, Father, I also pray that you would just pour out grace upon grace on us as a church as we center ourselves on the gospel, to be a church that mutually encourages, mutually uh, admonishes each other to run toward the truth of your story. God, for those who are here that don't know your story, who have never said, yes, I believe that, I believe that story, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that I can't do anything myself to save myself, but Jesus paid it all, I pray that this morning, God, that you would call them to your grace and that they would respond in obedience. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.